On our study of Matthew this morning, we come to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to try to look at the whole chapter today because I think sometimes it's, you know, there's so much here. You could spend a whole series just on any one of these chapters, but Jesus also gave it as a sermon. So there's these ideas that come together that follow one another also. So verses 1 through 29, message entitled, The Straight Path. Let's pray, then we'll look into the word. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, give us understanding today. Lord, that our hearts as Christians might be challenged to walk the straight path and not be taken aside to bypath metal because it looks softer or easier. Or we might get along better with the world. Lord, I pray that if there are any here that do not know you as Savior today, that as they hear the Savior's invitation from his words, Lord, you draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Now in this Sermon on the Mount, begins in chapter 5. And the king, we call the mandate of the king for his kingdom, begins with the Beatitudes, and he said, these are the characteristics This is the character of those that are in the kingdom. Now, when you read those things, you realize that's the character of the king. It's not our character naturally, is it not? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble. Blessed are the righteous. Blessed are those who rejoice when they're suffering. The king demonstrated that. That takes a change in our life to be like that. And this all leads to the conclusion of the invitation of the king to join him. It takes a change in our nature, the new nature, which he offered because he died on the cross. Then he says, if you have these characteristics, you're going to be salt and light. That's just who you are. You're going to be convicting just by your life. One time, Billy Graham was golfing with some people. And after he's done, a fellow that wasn't even golfing with him in the same little group of guys, I don't know how they do it, golf, not important, Uh, but... uh, said he just, he asked him how, how he enjoyed the time that day as they spent the afternoon together. He said, oh, I don't know, the guy's just condemning me the whole time. And he said, really, what did he say to you? And the guy thought for a minute, he said, well, actually, he didn't say anything. It was convicting. Because he probably heard the message of Billy Graham before and he saw his life and his life alone was convicting. It was salt and light. That's what God calls us to be, salt and light. Then he really gets to the core of the issue in verse 20 of chapter 5 and he says except as you can see him point at the little gaggle of pharisees across the crowd and say except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and pharisees you will not see the kingdom of heaven then he begins to lay out and compare what they say and what their predecessors say compared to what the word of god says and what's acceptable to them and to men and what is acceptable to god Then chapter 6, he says, when you practice your faith, you don't do that before God. So don't, don't, when you give, don't do that so men can see it. When you pray, that's not for other people to see, that's for you and God. When you fast, that's because you're seeking God's face and you're seeking God's will. It's not so other people can see you and go, oh, how spiritual they are. In every case, he says, if that's why you're doing it, That's your reward. What a fleeting reward to do things 
for what people might think about you or say about you. How vain is that? Then he comes to the end of chapter 6, and he says, in order for you to walk this path, you need to have a whole different set of values. Your focus needs to be the Lord. Therefore, you're living for eternity, not for just here and now. Therefore, don't lay up treasure here on earth. Don't live for this life. Don't live for other people's approval. You live for God's, and you don't live for this life. You live with eternity's values in view. So lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves can't break through and steal. And then he says, as he comes to the end of chapter 6, if you want to have peace, don't worry. That's, that's the key. Remember W.C. Fields and one old, and that really dates me, I'm sure. I was alive when he was alive, but I don't think he was doing movies anymore. But uh, W.C. Fields, a great comedian, um, said the cure for uh, insomnia is get plenty of sleep. Yes, yes it is. The cure for anxiety is don't worry. How do you do that? By changing your focus to the Lord. By understanding that he's the one that provides, not you. He's the one that gives peace. He's the one that protects, not you. And based upon the Pharisees that were standing there and God's standard, he comes to chapter 7 and he says, don't judge. Don't judge. Because by what judgment you judge, you're going to be judged also. See, the Pharisees called themselves the gatekeepers of heaven. But the Holy Spirit writes through James in that epistle, and he says, well, if you're a judge of the law, then you're not a doer. You have enough to do with your own life, you know, hoeing your own roll of corn, focusing on you to be worried about other people and passing sentence on them. But, you know, of all the scriptures, this is probably the most abused maybe in scripture when it comes to the world. Oh, they love this one. Don't judge. And they're so worried about people judging them especially in this day of political correctness. They don't even want to hear truth, that anything that would disagree with their opinion. And so they go to this passage, don't judge. What Jesus is saying here is don't pass sentence on people. doesn't mean that you walk around with blinders on and you can't tell when somebody's participating in sin. Because as a believer, part of our responsibility is to confront our brothers and sisters in sin that they might be restored. Part of our responsibility is salt and light to proclaim truth. And guess what? That's not going to sell well, and that's not going to sit well with those that don't know the Lord. Because they're always finding a way to justify themselves. Talk to people all the time and say, how do we minister to this group of people? How do we minister to that group of people? And if I study everything about Mormonism or Catholicism or this cult or that cult or something else, then I'll be able to answer to be able to minister to those people. No, you won't. Because you might say to someone in a certain religion, oh, your religion believes this. And I say, well, I don't believe that part. I don't accept that part. Why? Because we're all making up our own rules, even those that are a part of those individual different ways to heaven. They'll all come back to you when you bring the scriptures. Oh, don't judge. Don't judge. 
John MacArthur said, in many circles, those who hold to strong convictions and who speak up and confront society and the church are branded as violators, not to judge. Yet at no time in the history of the church or of ancient Israel was spiritual and moral reformation achieved apart from confrontation. The church reformers of the 16th century were men of strong doctrine, conviction, and principle, apart from which the Protestant Reformation would never have come about. Scripture does not teach that we are never to evaluate, criticize, or condemn the actions or teaching of another person. You're just called not to pass sins. You don't know what the end's going to be. Well, that guy's a drunk and he's going to hell. You don't know that. That's not your job. You might confront a brother and say, listen, seems that you're matching the description where the Bible says you're a drunkard or drugs have taken over your life. I want to help you. It's going to destroy you. That's what a good doctor would say when you go to the doctor. He's going to say, well, I see some problems here, but listen, don't worry about it. No, no, what is a doctor? Oh, I don't want to feel bad, so just go home and don't worry about it. No, that would be a wicked doctor. A good doctor says, here's the problem, here's the cure, here's the medicine, here's the surgery, here's what the the steps we're going to have to take to restore you to health. The entire thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is to show the complete distinction between true religion and false religion. In this greatest sermon by our Lord, if it teaches anything... It teaches that his followers are to be discerning and perceptive in what they believe and what they do. They must make every effort to judge between truth and falsehood, between the internal, the external, between reality and sham, between true righteousness and false righteousness. In short, between God's way and other ways. You're called to be discerning. What's the difference? It's the heart that it comes from. Because Jesus begins and he says, Do not judge so that you will be not judged. For in the way you judge, you'll be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So if you're measuring out the Scripture, praise the Lord, right? You're willing to live under that standard. Verse 3, and why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye? Hmm, what's he saying? There's a time to confront. But first you have to deal with your own heart. In Galatians 6, Paul gives the instruction of the Galatians, if you overtake a brother in a fault, you that are spiritual, restore such an one, considering yourself also, lest you be tempted. There are some Christians running around with the gospel hammer, with the hammer of the law, and they beat everybody up, and then they say, well, I'm just trying to love you, brother. Well, it didn't feel like love, right? In fact, I think sometimes... There are people who didn't really get saved. They just got a new hammer. It was just their personality to be critical and judge. So Jesus says, when you confront, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, that's a picture, isn't it? You got a log sticking out of your head, and you're saying, you know, that speck in your eye is really bothering me. Let me help you with that. When I was working for Gunite uh, after the Army, I was an inspector on a line. They had these big mills, and they made, uh, they had a foundry and a machine shop. They made big disc brakes and drum brakes and wheels for semis. And so in my inspection, I had to go inspect each one of the machines on the line. And so one day I was walking by, and a piece of steel got over my safety glasses into my eye. 
So, you know, you kind of mess with a little bit. think, ah, I'm going to have to go to the nurse. So I go to the nurse, and this wonderful old nurse with glasses like this thick was going to help me. And so she's coming at me with this big Q-tip. And I could see her eye like this big. And I'm pulling away. And finally, she drove the steel in deep enough that uh, uh, she said, you know, I think you're going to have to go to the doctor. I'm like, thank you. I went to the doctor, and he, uh, they do what they do. You know, he froze my eyeball, and then he got the steel out. Then he vacuumed all the rust that she jammed in there. And uh, then he gave me some medicine, and he gave me strict instruction. You take this medicine till it's gone. Don't you mess with this. Yes, doctor. Well, that's one thing for somebody to have big glasses and have a big eye and not know what there is. Another thing to have somebody with a log sticking out of their head. Why do other people's sins bother us so much? Because we got a log sticking out of our head. And Jesus says, listen, you're called to confront your brothers and sisters in love. But it's for restoration. It's not for your aggrandization. That's what the Pharisees did. They thought they made themselves look better by putting everybody else down. That's not Christian. That's not what Jesus did. He said, first deal with the log coming out of your head, and you're able to see clearer to take the speck out. Then he goes on to have this verse. What was this verse doing here with logs and specks? Do not give that which is holy to dogs and do not cast your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. What does that have to do there? Because we're not called to be passing sentence on people. You, don't, you can't look at a person and say, well, they're bound for hell. I'm pretty sure they're not, they're, they're not elect. They're going to hell. I can just tell. No, you can't. You can't look at a person's heart. Only God knows that. Some of the most wonderful, powerful testimonies are people that everybody else has written off, but God didn't write off. So don't you write them off. You love them. But you don't have to share everything with every person. You say, you know, that person's just terrible. They're living in sin. Yeah, they're not saved. Well, that really bothers me. That's your problem. Leave it alone. Somebody says, I can't stand the word of God. Well, don't cast your pearls before swine. Why? Because swine can't, they, they have no appreciation for pearls. What are, they, what are they supposed to do? What are pigs supposed to do with pearls? Oh, look at that. No, that's not good. What do they do? Walk them underfoot. Don't give that which is holy unto the dogs. Don't waste your time with that. You'll get chewed up. It's always amazing to me these... Uh, these pundits, you know, and we like them, but uh, Sean Hannity and, and uh, the other guy on the radio. And, and, and they give you these, you know, they're every day they're, you know, battling for their side and their cause. And then once they'll take back seven and say, can you believe people are talking about me? Can you believe the way you criticize? Well, yeah, that's your business. That's the business you're in. Jesus already said when we take a stand, there's going to be some opposition. Listen, you can't save anybody, and you can't change anybody's mind. You're called to be salt and light, take stands, share the gospel, and leave it 
where it is. If somebody's resistant to that, you don't have to stand there and get torn up. That doesn't mean you take the side, I'm never going to share again. No. But he goes on to the next part and he says, you need to be praying about this. Why? Because you need wisdom to discern. And what is the source of wisdom? It's God. Then how do I know when to share, when to confront everything you take to the Lord? You have a personal relationship with the king. He knows what he's doing. He's the one that can change a heart. So if you're really sharing the gospel, sharing the truth, sharing scripture, walking in the spirit, you're not going to know when to speak and when to be quiet because there's a time to be quiet. So he says, come and ask. James writes kind of the same thing, and he says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. See, in the Old Testament, in Proverbs 29, there's these two verses right next to each other. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like unto him. The very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. So what am I supposed to do? Go to the source of wisdom. Ask God. He wants, he, he loves to give us his answers. How many times the Lord Jesus is giving answers and we go, oh, I wish I'd have thought of that. You know, like when they bring the coin or, or when they say, are we supposed to pay taxes or not? So he says, well, bring me a coin because they're looking to trip him up. They want to trap him to say, no, don't take, don't pay taxes. And if he says, yeah, pay the taxes, and says, oh, see, you're supposed to honor this Roman law. They just want to trip him up, and so he says, bring me a coin. And very simple, they, he says, whose face is on the coin? Well, that's Caesar. Okay, then give what to, to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. So simple, but so profound. Listen, that wisdom is available to every believer if we will take the time and pray. We think we have to have an answer ready all the time. You don't. Think about this. Some of the wisest people you know and respect are people that they don't say much. But then when they do, you go, oh, that was worth waiting for, right? That was our Savior. That was Jesus. They're always goading him. And sometimes when they bring the, John 8, they bring the woman taken in adultery and they throw her down and say, ah, the law says she should be stoned. And he doesn't even answer him. And then he says, you that have no sin, yeah, stoner, cast the first stone, you people with no sin. Go ahead and get started. And tradition says he, he kneels down in the dirt and he draws in the dirt. Tradition says he was just begin to, you know, line out the law. Interesting, they left from the oldest to the youngest. Why? Because oldest had more sin. And then they all left and he turns to the woman and he says, where are your accusers? From tear-stained eyes, she looks up and she says, they're gone. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's what Jesus does. He changes lives. He said, I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. Now he's coming again as a judge. And no one will hide from that. In the meantime, we have this message of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, as though Jesus were begging through us, be reconciled to God. 
And the only way you can share that is if you bring with the truth. And the truth is in opposition to the natural heart of man. But you don't have to share that with everybody. You're not called to confront a non-believer like he's a believer. So what do you need? You need the wisdom of God. And he says, come unto me. Ask me. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, it will be opened unto you. Now look at the context. He's not saying, hey, you need a new Mercedes. Ask me, I'll give it to you, is he? That's not the context here. It's wisdom for life. When you need wisdom about a decision, come to God. And I want you to know something. God's not a bad genie. You know the bad genie? You rub the lamp. He says, okay, you got three wishes. And so the guy says, old joke, I'd like a million bucks. And the next thing, his yard's full of deer. Oh, I should have said dollars. That's not our father. Our father, oh, you didn't ask. Oh, you messed up in that route. Let me just show you how. No. He says, if you being evil know how to give good things to your son, how much more does your father in heaven? And so if your son is hungry, don't you, want to, don't you love to take care of your children? I do. I love to take care. I love to watch them eat. When they were growing up, just feed them. Chrissy said, do we have to buy a gallon of milk for each one of them? Yes, we do. Every day. They're going to play football. They've got to be huge, be able to take a hit. So, yeah, we've got, we got to buy that milk. But he said, if your son's hungry, you don't give him a snake. You don't give him a stone. You don't give him a scorpion. God's not waiting to catch you in every little word because you didn't ask right. Jesus said to his disciples, your heavenly father, it's his joy to share the kingdom with you. He wants you to have that wisdom. In the Proverbs, there's a proverb that says that it rejoices a father's heart when his son gives the right answer. He's our heavenly father. He wants us to have that wisdom. He says, come to me so I can give you wisdom. Verse 12, bottom line for the law. Here it is. You've heard it as the golden rule. In everything, therefore, treat the people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus took everything and made it so simple. Isn't that simple? Not easy, though, is it? You're going to need the wisdom of God for every decision of life. Don't ever come to the place that you say, well, I've got this. I know this. No, we want to be known as learners, not experts. We're not the doctors of the law, the keepers of the gate. We're followers, followers of Christ. Verse 13 and 14, know your path. How do you know your path? In Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim's Progress was written in 1678. It was published in 1678, written by an itinerant preacher, who wrote it in prison because he didn't have a license to preach, but he felt like the gospel was not bound. He needed to be out there sharing it. He was an uneducated pot repair man who God saved, and he wrote. And Pilgrim's Progress is probably, it is. It's the most read book outside of the Bible. It's very good. It's every man's path, every woman's path, every decision we have to make. 
And before he actually has his load released because he's coming to the cross, he's pointed to go through the straight gate, the wicked gate. He goes to that gate, then he's pointed to interpreter's house. In interpreter's house, he's given pictures to look at and to consider about his path. And as he's leaving the house, he asks the interpreter, are there no other exits or paths that come off this path? An interpreter, the pastor says, oh yes, there are many ways that lead out of the path. But you know the right path because it's always straight and narrow. It may be difficult, but it's always straight and narrow. Why was Pilgrim asking that? Well, because he'd already been turned out of the way. He fell into the slough of despond, but because God was working in his heart, he just kept going. He just, he, and Evangelist showed up and helped him. And then another guy comes along and points him toward the town of morality. And he starts to go that way, and Evangelist shows up again. And every time he goes out of the path, he has to go back to where he started. One time he went on without the scripture, and he realized he needed that encouragement every day. So he had to go back to the place where he fell asleep and pick up the scripture. So he's asking the question because he said he knew there's a lot of things that can fool us in life. He said, you want to know the right way. Understand this, in all the decisions that you make in your life, not just the decision to follow Christ, but in all those decisions, enter through the narrow gate. Enter the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So if you're concerned that there's not a lot of the people that agree with the gospel, Jesus agrees with that. And the decisions you make to honor Christ in your life, many times they're the hard, straight path, not the easy path. And he says, you need to know about false prophets, verses 15 through 20. How do you know a false prophet? Bottom line, by their fruit. They speak a lot of things, but you can tell by what their life produces. You don't go to an apple tree to find grapes, right? It's very simple. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. And then the saddest words anyone will ever hear. There's a lot of people that look good in religion, but every one of us need to understand this. Peter writes to his congregation, those that are scattered and the people that he loved in Second Peter. And he says, make sure your election in Christ. Make sure you're saved. Why? Because some wander. And he said, there's a problem when you don't see things clearly. Either you're blind, you've never been saved, or you've wandered and you've become short-sighted. Make sure your election in Christ. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, verse 22, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons? And your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
There's coming a day when everyone that has rejected Christ will stand at a great white throne judgment. The books will be opened. One's, one is the, is the book of judgment. The other one is the Lamb's book of life. And those that aren't written in the Lamb's book of life will stand at that judgment. And there will be no argument. Those that have rejected him and have hated him will bow their knee, it says in Philippians chapter 2. And they will admit that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then they'll be, hear those words, depart from me. I would never knew you. Did God know about them? Oh, yes, God knew about them. But he did not know them as his own children that could come to him and pray and get wisdom and protection and provision and leadership. Depart from me, worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Those are the most fearful words any human being can hear because that's eternal. That's sentencing. That's judgment from which there is no escape. And Pilgrim, in the beginning of the book, Pilgrim's Progress, he's read these words, flee the wrath to come. And he has a burdened heart because of his sin because he realizes his condition. And all the people around him say, you don't, don't worry, why are you so worried about it? Are you mad? Have you lost your mind? That is a supernatural convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And one day, a man comes to him and he says, what's wrong? He says, I read in this book, flee the wrath to come, and I don't know which way to go. He says, do you see wicked gate, yonder wicked gate? I don't see it. Well, do you see the light that's there? I think I do. He says, you head towards the light. He did not lead him in a prayer. He gave him the word of God. He had the book in his hand, and he said, just follow where the Holy Spirit is leading you. It's amazing, isn't it? But those that care about what men think and what others think, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, the fearful and the unbelieving and all liars and adulterers and whoremongers, they're all lumped together, the fearful. Those that were just afraid will have their place that burns forever and ever. This is the second death. So here's the invitation of the king, verses 24 through 27. So how do I come to that? How do I follow him? Jesus' invitation in Matthew chapter 11, 28 is, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. We've already seen that. We can't live up to the standards of the king. We need new life. We need a new DNA. Take up your cross and follow me. Here's what he's saying. There is a wise man and a foolish man. A lot of people hear the truth, but only those that act on it. See, there are storms coming in every life. Somebody preaches you a gospel that you receive Jesus and everything's just going to be wonderful after that. They're lying to you. This whole health and wealth thing is ridiculous. And it's imported overseas for poor people and they love it. And the only people getting rich are the people at the top. That's not the gospel. The gospel is there's a storm coming. And the only way to prepare for it is build your house on the rock. The foolish man doesn't take the time to go down and get a good foundation. He says, I'll just do what I want. I'm going to save money. I'm going to save time. I'm going to have the acclaim of the world. I'm going to have it easy, so I'm just going to build my house the way I want to. And the storm comes and destroys the life. 
But the wise man digs down and he builds his house on the rock. Who's the rock? It's Jesus Christ. Well, how do I do that? Therefore, verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them is the wise man. That's the wise man. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed it at the house, and the house of the foolish man fell, the house of the wise man stood. The little kids sing a song. The wise man built his house upon the rock. Remember that in Sunday school? The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came out. And the house on the rock stood firm. You want to last through the storm? You better build it on the rock. Romans chapter 1 verse 5 Paul said, God has called me to bring about the obedience of faith. It's not just what you say. What is your life? What is your life? That obedience can only come that God honors by a new life, by recognizing your life is not worth it. It's not about learning more and more things. It's about the obedience of faith. And this offer is authoritative. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them not as teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. What were the scribes doing? They were always citing somebody else and their interpretation by somebody else so they could prove that they're right because five people agreed with them. But see, this is the king making the offer. Have received the offer of the king. He said, follow me. Build your life upon me. Storms are coming, and the only escape is the protection of the king. Father, we thank you for your, for your son who came and gave himself for us. We thank you for this invitation that we can join you in the kingdom by recognizing our unworthiness, our own spiritual bankruptcy, and receiving that from you which cannot pass away eternal life that was paid for at the cross. Lord, if there are any here today that not received you as Savior, that today might be the day they recognize the awful condition, the storm is coming, the wrath is coming, and they need to flee. Lord, draw them to yourself. Let them flee into your arms this morning. And Lord, I pray as believers we might be challenged to be the salt and light that you've called us to be. To be people of wisdom, that our words are apples of gold and pictures of silver that make you beautiful. Lord, that we might hear well done. We pray in the name of our Savior, who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.